Hey, welcome to Easter at Eastlake. We are so glad that you're joining us today. If this is your first time, welcome. Wow, we're church for people who don't typically like church, and it's a big day for us. For those of us who call ourselves Christians, it doesn't really get any bigger than Easter. It's still a pretty cool, pretty cool holiday, even if you're not uh, like a religious person because of the Easter egg hunts and all the good stuff, but and family and excuse to like eat food together. But like, if you're a Christian, today we celebrate the most important event in human history. And I know some of you are like, Christmas <clears throat> Christmas is great. Like, it's about Jesus' birth, right? <clears throat> and, like, I'm not trying to brag here, but, like, I've done that. Like, I've been born. You know what I mean? Like, this is, this is something more than that. So I think Easter trumps it in that way. Uh, it's probably a familiar story. You heard one of the versions of it uh, during that third song, kind of a reading of it. Um, all four gospel writers, so gospel writers being this, um, the Bible split up into two different Old Testament and New Testament. In the New Testament, the first four books are known as the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them have to do with the person, the teaching of Jesus. Uh, and the unique thing about them is <clears throat> they, they all tell almost the same story. They come at it from four different ways. Some of them include certain stories, and other ones don't include it. But they all end the same exact way with Jesus being arrested, arrested crucified, uh, buried, and then rising again. And that's, the, that's like the culmination of all of them. And, and <clears throat> for whatever reason, each of them thought, I need to tell this story. And even though the other one was out there, like, I got to tell this story. I got to tell my side of this thing. Um, and so we're going to look, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to recap some of it and, and point out something I think is uh, unique about it. And I'm going to kind of weave in through John and Luke and Mark. So anyways, I'll try and guide you along the way. But here's how the probably familiar to you story. You came today, you knew it was Easter, right? You got a mailer, somebody invited you. You've been to church at Easter before. I'm guessing at some point you've been here before. So you, you know how this story ends. I'm not shocking anybody. Nobody's going, God, I wonder if that if tomb is empty. How, how did that happen, Right. Uh, it's going to end the same way. I just think I'm going to kind of be hopefully a tour guide that's kind of pointing out some interesting things along the way that's going to hopefully make it more meaningful for you. All right, here we go. Uh, Mark chapter 16. Uh, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus's uh, body. Why did they buy them on that day? If you remember, I, I mentioned he was arrested on Thursday night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Friday morning, he's put on trial. By Friday afternoon, late afternoon, he's crucified. Uh, sundown at Friday at night is, is Sabbath. That's when Sabbath starts. And so it's, it's good Jewish people. You, you don't shop. You don't do any work. You don't do anything. And so for them, they didn't have any time to prepare. So they haven't even bought spices because the idea of Jesus being dead, somebody they loved and cared about being dead and having to do kind of post-burial care for this person hadn't even crossed their minds until Sunday morning. This, they were in a state of flux. They were in a state of, uh, of, of, of shock, probably. Uh, they had believed that he was an incredible teacher. They had, uh, many of them followed him for years, seen him say all kinds of things, do some pretty miraculous sort of events. They had probably even hoped he was the long-awaited Messiah, that, that as a kid, <clears throat> their parents had probably brought them in and read to them the, the Old Testament, the Torah, the Tanakh, or whatever, and said, uh, we as a nation have been chosen by God, but yet we're under this oppression from Rome, but God is one day going to send a Messiah to rescue us, to deliver us from this, and to once again set Israel on its rightful spot as kind of the central pinnacle of creation. So anyways, for sure they had these hopes and, and uh, expectations about who Jesus was, um, and yet, messiahs don't get arrested, and messiahs definitely don't get crucified, and messiahs definitely don't die. So we thought one thing, but now we're in this new, maybe he was just a really good person, which is totally kind of normal place 
uh, to be at. And then the next question becomes, what, do you, what, do, what does it mean for them to anoint Jesus' body? And not typical for us when, when, when people um, die, we don't like, typically want to see the body or do anything with the, the body. But, and for them, um, they, they, their culture was not one of cremation. Roman, Romans believed in cremation, but for Jewish people, the body was a sacred thing, was a gift by God that was on loan to us. Uh, And therefore, when we die, our entire bodies are wrapped sort of like a mummification from Egypt, but a little bit less uh, less so wrapped and uh, given some perfume or uh, perfumed spices or herbs or whatever, and then that's our parting gift to this body. And it's typically uh, put in some sort of a cave or crevice or or thing in the side of a mountain, and that was the burial process for them. So they felt an obligation to go up and rewrap Jesus' body. Why rewrap? A couple of reasons why, probably. Number one. Um, I mentioned this whole thing happened fast. Um, so even from his death and on Friday afternoon, they were whoever was doing this rap job, which was probably Joseph of Arimathea, who the story says went and bribed Pilate so that he could bury him and give his sort of master or rabbi some sort of a proper treatment. But it was kind of a, probably a rush job, so perhaps something got missed along the way. And then number two, it was two men who did the rap job. So like, you know, these women are like, come on, we could probably fix this thing. I'm sure the guy's had good intentions and good meanings, but uh, we got this, right? Because I remember I was 24 when my first daughter was, my first child was born, daughter. <clears throat> She's now 11. I had never, at, tw- at the age of 24, I had never changed a diaper in my entire life. Um, and, and that might be like a shame for you because I have, I have, if you know me, I have three younger sisters. One of them is 10 years younger than me. And you're like, you never changed. I never, I didn't mention I was a good brother. I just said I had three younger sisters. And so I remember, like, you got that whole, like, oh, bring the kid home, first dad kind of experience. You're, like, trying to, you know, feed with the bottle, and that's good, and I did that. And I remember taking London in and, and you know, doing the whole rap thing, walking away feeling real good about it myself until I walked back into the room, like, two minutes later, and I caught my bride, like, rewrapping the diaper on there. And I'm like, what's, what gives? She's like, well, it's, you, you tried so hard. You did such a good but it goes between the legs. That's really a key part. You've got to kind of get this. Oh my God, that makes so much more sense. So we totally understand why these women would feel like a rewrap job is necessary. Um, and they go up. Now, by, by the way, it's always mentioned three days later. It's probably about 40 hours later, okay? Friday night, Sunday morning, very early in the morning is when it says it goes. But it's still, so that doesn't discount it. Like, I don't know if you've ever t- seen dead things. They, they, it decomposes fast. There are smells involved there. I don't know if you've ever come across something that's been dead for even just a few days, maybe like a dead horse or something. It is not a pleasant experience. This was by far for them an act of love. This teacher had meant so much to us. We, out of an act of love, are going to go do this. And every year around this time, I ask my wife, what would it take? Do you love me enough? If you felt like Cadillac didn't do a good enough job wrapping me up or whatever, would three days later, would you come and do a rewrap job out of your love for me? And her response every year is always the same. Can I bring my new husband with me? Is that possible? And I'm like, three days. 40 hours, really. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb? <clears throat> but when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Now, the, the next perspective, Luke points out something d- d- distinct from us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, he's the third gospel in the New Testament gospels. Um, he was uh, not one of Jesus' disciples. He was actually a doctor. 
um, which means he had wealth and education levels that probably some of the disciples probably didn't, uh, took upon himself to write an orderly account. He had a friend named Theophilus at the very beginning that we read about in Luke chapter 1. He writes to his friend and says, Theophilus, you've inquired about the life and the teachings of Jesus. I took it upon myself to do tons of research to try and give you the most accurate picture possible of what he actually said and what he actually did. That's why one of the reasons I love Luke. And his, in his description of what took place, it says that they found the tomb empty. And this is the part of the story that I think is really interesting because I think we miss this because we're so familiar with the story. Like I mentioned earlier, you didn't show up not knowing the ending of the story. You expected me to talk about something like this. And maybe you've never been to Eastlake before and because and I, I feel like I, I point this out every year. But they, the, one of the significant things to think about is these women and especially even later these men did not expect a resurrection. Nobody expected no body, okay? They did not show up going, I, I think it's, I, you know, it's, it's time. It's finally the third day. Let's all go outside of the tomb and count down from 10, 10, 9, 8. Nobody was there doing any of that. This was a complete out of left field uh, thing for them. We feel like maybe, oh, it seems like it was really easy for them to believe a resurrection. Then we absolutely miss actually reading the story. None of them assumed resurrection. In fact, when they found nobody in, when they expected to find a body, they found no body, they would run back to the men who were huddled back in the house, and they would say this, there's no body where there's supposed to be a body. And here's the men's response, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So if you thought not believing women was sort of a modern man issue, it's happened for thousands of years, guys. They didn't believe them. Why didn't they believe them? Because it's a ridiculous notion. It is literally one of the most ridiculous ideas ever. One year, my Easter message was titled The Most Ridiculous Thing You Could Ever Think About. This is, our, this is from Christianity. It's really easy to sell you on you should love your neighbors and love your enemies and whatever, and I could kind of give you some thoughts on it. You should be kind to people or pray for those who persecute you, all that kind of stuff. All of that, like, we can get around, and we can kind of wrap our minds, or, or maybe somebody else has sort of said something similar in similar ways, but when it comes to this, this is so unique, and it's so out there, and it's so like, listen, I like Christianity. I like what you guys stand for. I, I like this. This is an interesting take on church. I want a church like this to be in my community because I feel like it's a beneficial presence for the people in my community. But I just can't wrap my mind around this singularity, this thing that you guys hold in such high regard that every day, every year around this time, you get one chance to fill a room with a bunch of people and you keep talking about the same dumb thing every single year. You would think you'd want to kind of diversify. You got everybody in a room, man. Talk about something a little bit more, I don't know, with handles, something that's a little bit more believable, something that looks better on a bumper sticker, tweeted later out, you know, after I leave or whatever. If you are of the mindset that Jesus existed, which probably most of us are, in fact, most scholarly attention, religious or irreligious, still believe, most, most people believe that a guy named Jesus actually existed, that he was actually crucified by Rome. And that's kind of where it stops, right? He actually existed. Most people think that he was actually a good moral teacher. Um, and and it, from what we read about it, we can be kind of impartial to the divinity piece of it, but we can be like, hey, he had some really good things to say. And, and I didn't even know that, but I try and live my life based on some of those principles. We would do well to pattern our life after his teachings, and that's about it. If that's what you believe, then you are in good company. That's essentially what the disciples believed on Sunday morning. They had spent three years with this guy watching him. Then they watched him be arrested. Then they watched him die on a cross, and they go, well, that's it. 
well, that was fun. That was a good ride. He was a really good person, probably the best person I'd ever met. He said some things I'd never heard before, challenged me in some ways. I think I'm a better person based on having experienced kind of his kind of program or whatever. And I think I would do well and it would do well for all of our followers to take what he said and kind of pattern our life after that. And that's about it. None of them assumed a resurrection. They assumed the exact same thing that you and I think about when it comes to our loved ones who have passed on. They stay passed on, which is why in Luke chapter 24, verse 12, it says this, Peter, however, which you think at this point, that kind of twists into, oh yeah, but one guy got it, right? Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away. And what did he went away going doing? Shouting, he did it, he actually did it. I knew it, nobody else believed, but I sure did. Nope, that's not how it works, guys. That's, that's Brent edition, you should probably read your Bible more. Here's what it says. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Peter, Peter, the one that Jesus took on top of a hill, overlooked Caesarea Philippi and said, I'm gonna, who do you think that I am? I think you're the Messiah, the son of God. On, on that statement right there, Peter, I'm gonna build my church. You are gonna be the rock and the center and the core of this thing. Peter, one of Jesus's basically top three. He's not supposed to have favorites, but he does. He's got Peter, James, and John. He even leads the three. Peter, the one who would, who would leave behind the family business to go follow him. He walks in on the day after, or three days, three days after uh, he, he dies, walks into an empty tomb and doesn't immediately go to, he did it. He goes to, I don't know what happened. Somebody must have stolen the body. He thinks exactly what you would think and what I would think if we were in the exact same position, which is why I think this is one of the validating arguments that I bring up every single year. Nobody painted themselves into the story as having got it while everybody else didn't get it. Not one of them documents their belief. They all document their disbelief. A chance to be able to, if I'm setting the story straight, listen, John didn't believe, and Andrew didn't believe, and Luke didn't believe, but man, I was like outside the tomb, ready to rock and roll. Let's do this, Jesus. Nobody is there. Listen, last week, um, uh, the Masters took place, right? It was, uh, they, they foolishly moved it up, so it happened during church, which is actually a crime against humanity. I don't even know if you know that, but as a pastor, I, 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 I'm out in the lobby, and we have it on the screens in the lobby, and the service is going on. It's literally this 11 o'clock service, and Tiger is walking up the, the fairway at 18 uh, during the third song. We do three songs. That's how it, this is how it works every week, and I can hear the third song almost ending, and I'm out there like walking, but like doing the whole neck kind of right before you go around the corner, like getting every last possible second, I had to miss him hugging his kid because I had to come in here and be with you. It's not, I love you, it's fine, it's great. But I'm out there and as I'm, I, I remember being out there and, and uh, there's probably 20 or 30 of us out there. So I don't even know who was in here. It's ghost town probably. But I'm out there and I remember one of them, somebody watching this thing goes, I knew it. I knew he was gonna do this. I knew he was gonna win it this year. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you did not, you liar. I didn't say that out loud because I'm wearing like a name tag that says pastor and like I, you know, didn't know the guy. So anyways, but in, in my mind, I'm thinking, you did not. And we have, <clears throat> we have <clears throat> like on Twitter, timestamps of people going, Tiger will never win another Masters. And now he's got this chance to be able to lord that over them and be like, ha ha, I did, right? They document their disbelief. Listen, in this moment, they could have easily, they could have easily, because they're the ones writing the story, said, but not me, I totally got it. And they didn't, I love it. Why? Because you don't. 
Like when people die, you go to their funeral not being like, cross our fingers, we'll see if this thing happens. <clears throat> Every time you go to a funeral, and you should, you think, let's celebrate the life, let's, let's tell stories about them, and let, you know, we're moving along. This is what life now looks like without them. <clears throat> Verse 19 of John chapter 20. On the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, they're huddled away. Doors locked. Why are the doors locked? Because their teacher has just been arrested, put on trial, crucified in like mere moments. And they're thinking probably we're next. Like they're gonna come down the, the pile and they're gonna go Peter, James, John, and the rest of us, right? <clears throat> Jesus shows up, pays them a visit. And they responded the same way that you and I would respond if we had watched somebody die. And then we hear a knock at the door, we open the door, and there is that same exact person. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? And it's probably rhetorical. He probably says it with a smirk on his face. Oh, is this scaring you? Oh, is this, is this shocking to you? Why is this so shocking to you? I don't know, because you're dead. What are you doing here, Right? <clears throat> he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. So then he sees them and says, why is this so surprising to you? I talked about this while we were together. He then goes into this. Everything must be fulfilled with what is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, meaning all of these scriptures that you hold in such high esteem as Jewish boys and Jewish kids. This would be something that you grew up hearing about, reading about, memorizing. And in that, it begins to talk about a Messiah who's gonna come, who's gonna rise again on the third day and provide repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it's gonna be taught about in Jerusalem. And you didn't hear it. Why? Because you don't like the idea of a Messiah who has to die in the same way. And this is so normal. We don't like hearing bad news either. We tend to tune out bad things when we don't wanna hear them. When we go to the doctor and we come home and our spouse goes, so what would they say? And you'd be like, I don't know, nothing much. And they're like, there's like, there's like medication that's gonna save your life. And you're like, I gotta like do a little something. Like the blood pressure is a little bit crazy, whatever. You know what I mean? We'll figure this out. We downplay, we have the selective hearing about things that we don't wanna hear about. This is what's going on with this and the disciples is what he's saying. And then he says to them this one thing that I think is the most transformative. This would be something that every single one of them probably remembered. And this is the reason that we have the gospels, the way we have them, we have the church and all that kind of stuff. You are witnesses of these things. Luke chapter 24, verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. Therefore, go and tell people about me. Don't huddle up any longer in this. Don't be confined any longer to he was a really good man, but then he died and then that's kind of it. And I'll always treasure and these memories in my heart. No, 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 you are witnesses of something that has changed the world. You are witnesses to an event that triggered a movement that changes the world, which is what Christianity believes. Listen, Christianity did not come because of the Bible. Christianity is not a result of the Bible. In fact, Christianity would exist for about 400 years prior to the Bible coming together to be the Bible that you hold in your hand or probably sits at your uh, bookshelf at home or whatever it is. Christianity did not come as a result of uh, somebody having enough faith and we got all gathered together. This was an event in history. The resurrection started the entire movement known as the church. Nobody was gonna start a movement in Jesus' name after his crucifixion. Listen, he was a great guy. And when he died, his stuff would have died with him. Maybe for one generation, it would have been like, hey, I'll always remember, and they'll tell their kids about this one day I met this guy. You never got a chance to meet him because he passed on early, but he was a great man. His stories would have died with him. All the things that you love about the teachings, there would have been, 
listen, if his resurrection had not taken place, you would not know about the Good Samaritan. That story that you love about the, you know, we should care for people who uh, are a lot unlike us and who could never repay us, um, we, should, we should love them. You like that story. You like the, the generosity that's there. We would have never known about any of that had the resurrection not taken place. The idea of the prodigal son, a God who loves us so much that he sees his son returning from a life, lived, doing whatever else, and is from a distance away, he runs out to meet him. This idea of forgiveness that we're like, no matter how far you run, you cannot run the love of the father. We're like, oh, that's so good. I love that so much. We would have never known about that had this not taken place. His stories, his teachings, all of the things about him would have never made it out of the first century. But why 2,000 years later do we, along with millions of other Americans and people around the world today, gather together to celebrate the teachings of the life of this person who we would say was so important, it should have changed how we live our life? It's because of a resurrection. And we don't believe it because the Bible tells us so, right? If you've been a part of Eastlake before, you know. <clears throat> That little phrase, we say, I don't believe this because the Bible tells me so. I believe it because it's so much more than that. I believe it because Mark could not shake it, that Matthew, one of his disciples, wrote about it, that Luke thought it was important to take an orderly account for his friend, that John, even though three gospels had already been written, as an old man, probably 30 or 40 years after the last gospel had been written, decides to tell his version of the story before he passes on. He's an old man at this point. And he goes, I saw some things. I'm writing a very personal account, being an insider about what Jesus was like and who he was. I, I, don't, believe, I don't believe the resurrection because uh, the Bible tells me so. I believe it because Paul would say, this is so critical. This is the one thing. You can, you can have a lot of things that you believe about Jesus. And you can be like, you can choose to believe uh, this about healings. You can take or pass on that. You can take or pass on him talking about forgiveness and his speaking truth to power when it comes to the religious systems and the temples and the Pharisees and Sadducees on that. You can do this, but you cannot pick and choose when it comes to resurrection. You take that out, the whole entire thing crumbles. The reason that we believe anything that we believe about Jesus is because of this. That's according to Paul. That's according to him. Now, I'm gonna come back to Peter. It's typically, each Easter, I pick one of these features to focus on. Last year, I think I did uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians talking about the centrality of the resurrection of, of Christ. Today, I wanna talk about Peter's perspective on it because I think he has a unique perspective, especially when it comes to suffering. Peter, I mentioned, did not write one of the Gospels, even though he was one of Jesus' disciples um, and uh, one of the top three, basically. He kind of recruited Mark to do it, probably because he was too busy leading, like, I got my hands busy doing too much business work involved in church. But at one point, he does sit down and write a letter to, to, to a church. He writes two letters to a church, in fact. A church going through an immense amount of suffering. He writes to a localized uh, church who, who was experiencing a level of suffering and persecution that the American church has really kind of never known, right? <clears throat> so he's, the entire thing is about suffering. And he starts it off with this. Praise be to, this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. He did not waste any time getting to this. He did not waste any time saying that this is the most important thing. He pushes it all up front and says, this is the reason why you should believe me about anything else that I've said. He pushes this thing up to the front and says, you start here. Because if you don't, then everything else can be like, well, what's your basis and what's your confidence of, of this? Why are you so confident that, that we should live our lives in this way? Why are you so confident that we should live ethically in this way or morally in this way? Pete, Paul, or Peter, how do you know? How do you know anything? 
How do you know that that's good? How do you know that loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you is a good way of doing life? Here's the reason why I know. And he would not mention the story of the prodigal son and how it represents forgiveness and love and all of these buzzwords that we love so often. He wouldn't mention the other's first ethics of Jesus' teaching like what we see in the Good Samaritan, as great as those are. He would say, my faith was resurrected when I witnessed the resurrection of my friend. I watched him die. I locked myself in a house. And a few days later, I saw him again. And then I was out fishing the next day and he was on the beach and we shared brunch together. I can't explain it. I can't deny it. He would eventually go to his death. Uh, church history, this is kind of an extra biblical thing, not in the Bible, but um, early church history says that he would eventually become a martyr for the faith. He would be um, <clears throat> interrogated, uh, interrogated and persecuted and tortured by of the Romans and said, you need to recant your beliefs. Quit talking about this risen Messiah. Just say, just say that he stayed dead and we'll let you go. And he's like, I cannot, I cannot deny, not what I believe, I cannot deny what I saw. And I will go to my death talking about believing what I saw. And he would eventually be crucified. <clears throat> in verse four, he would begin to talk about this new living hope that he mentioned in verse three, what this new life looks like. <clears throat> this new life includes an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. He brings in this idea of an inheritance. Who gets an inheritance in modern day society? In children, right? He brings in this relational aspect to this thing, that it's not a business transaction. It's not a, if you do enough, then you know if you go a certain way, God will meet you halfway. You, when, when it comes to fathers and children or moms and children, there's a parent-child dynamic that is an entire one-way street of grace. And he says, you have been recipients of that kind of grace. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. He begins to talk about this idea of an inheritance that comes as a result or, or that the, there's blessings in some sort of a future life, a life beyond this life, which is interesting, by the way. Most of you probably grow, grew up, even if it wasn't really a religious home, some sort of a, a sense of heaven. Why? Because your parents didn't want to talk to you about where grandma went when she died, right? It's like easier to be like, ah, she's in a better place and you'll see her someday, right? And you're like, oh, okay, I can go to bed now. And so that's why it worked. It's very pragmatic for most parents, right? You, most Americans, 80-something percent of Americans, believe in some sort of life after this life. Not really true for most Jewish people. For most Jewish people, uh, there was no life after this life. Life was what you made of it now, which is, which is what some people believe. And if that's what you believe right now, then you're in good company. That's exactly what many of them grew up believing. They believe that when you died, you'd go to the place called the land of the dead, which is really no land at all. It was called Sheol. And I have to very be quick about how I pronounce that because I screwed up for service and we had to censor it. I had to get beeped. Um, Sheol is the, is the name of the place. See what I'm saying? You heard it there. That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. That's the, the place of the dead. So the fact that he's talking about now writing to them saying that there's something coming for you and it's in a place that's beyond, that there's life beyond this life, that would be a significant movement in this direction. He's already showing how the life of Jesus is shaping his thinking. I didn't used to believe like this, but then I met somebody who kept talking about this. And then I watched him die and be resurrected. And now I'm choosing to believe it because of what he said. And I'm just taking him at his word. Why? Because he did something I've never seen before. And if, I can, if he can do that, then it would probably be smart or very logical of me to trust him when he says all of these other things about how the best way to live my life or what I should expect comes next. 
Peter believed in heaven because of something he saw as an adult, a resurrected Jesus who spoke often of heaven. Verse six, he goes on. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Here's what he's saying to them. It's interesting, Peter sees this grief, this, these trials that this church is going through, this suffering that they're engaging in. And it doesn't, for him, strike a chord of, I wonder if God, where God is in the midst of this. For him, for us, when we look out at pain and suffering in the world, whether it's personal, something that we're going through, or just something kind of uh, intangible, but like just pain and suffering that exists in the world in some you know, poverty-ridden countries or something like that, we would say, I don't know if I can believe in a good God who exists when he, allow, he, would allow, or he or she would allow something like this to happen, right? That was never a crisis of doubt or a crisis of faith for Peter. Why? Because for him, his life had been reshaped from the resurrection. He watched the person, uh, he watched the most uh, imaginable or the worst thing imaginable happen to the best person that he'd ever known. The worst thing imaginable had happened to the best person he had ever known. And then he survived it and he came back from it and now I saw God at work in suffering. Therefore, I believe that there is something at work in suffering. What gives you the right to think that, some, that God is still at work in spite of her suffering? Paul would say, that. I saw the best guy I ever known suffer something unimaginable, and, he, and God was still at work in it. That's why I think you as a church, going through whatever trials and pain and suffering that you're going through, that God can still be at work in this. And listen, you and I cling to that kind of hope. I don't know what kind of trials or pain or suffering you've currently been experiencing or have experienced in the past, but there's something comforting, palliative or whatever about the idea that God is still at work in this. And we hear people say, everything happens for a reason. I don't believe, like that's kind of a misconstrual of some words, but I can still believe that God is not absent in this. Like, where are you? I, can, I for sure can say, I don't see you. I don't know how this is working out, but I can trust in a God who's still in control even when it feels like it's out of control, even when I can't understand why you allow, would allow my kid to, this to happen to my child or why you would allow this divorce to take place, like kind of blindsided out of nowhere or why you would allow this relationship to fail or why you would allow me to lose my job right when I needed it most, all of these things. Why, why, why? Peter would say as an encouragement to this, you're, even though you're suffering through all of this, Here's what I know. God can still be at work. He is not absent in this. Listen, that's what we love. We love this about it. In fact, there's a couple other things we like about it. We like the idea that suffering is not evidence of God's absence. That feels very good. I could do an entire series on that. And you would, you would like it, especially for those of you who are currently experiencing some sort of suffering. You'd be like, I needed to hear this. This is so pragmatically, meaning it works for me. It's where I'm at. I love it. Or the idea that forgiveness is available. You like the idea of feeling like I haven't gone too far, that there is still hope for me, even though like the fact that I'm here is kind of a big deal, like for me, not for you, Brent, I don't care about you. But anyways, for me, this is a big deal that I would actually come to church. Like if you knew my story, if you knew my history, if you knew my background, the idea that you can't outrun God, the idea of the prodigal son who comes home and the father sees him from a ways off and runs towards him, isn't waiting for him going like, you have 30 seconds to like, Tell me your story and see if you can earn my respect back. The, I, the idea that forgiveness is optional. Why, why, Peter, what gives you the right? How do you know that forgiveness is available? 
Peter would say, the reason that I know that forgiveness is available is because I believed in Jesus and who he was. Then when he got arrested, I disbelieved who he was, which is why I went back to fishing and locking myself in homes. Then when a little girl, a teenage girl, approached me and said, hey, you're one of his disciples, I denied that I ever believed. And then when he invited me on the beach, having resurrected, and now I get to see him in real life, I re-believed. So just to clarify, let me back this up. I believed, then I disbelieved, I denied I ever believed, and now I re-believed. So therefore, I feel like forgiveness is available because it was available for me, and the reason it's available for me is because Jesus rose from the dead. It all comes back to this. Any sort of principle that, uh, of any series that we teach here is always like, hey, I think this is true. I think you should do this. I think you should learn to wear love in your community. I think you should respond to the grace that's been given to you to wear love in all kinds of different ways to your life. Uh, in whatever season, whatever giftings that you have. Well, why do you think that? Well, the reason I think that is because Jesus said this is the best way to live your life. Well, who's, what, is, what kind of authority does he have? We point to Easter and we would say, he conquered death, like death didn't stop him. Like I go with the guy who rose from the dead. Like that's how it works. In my life, I've never seen anybody do that. I've never seen anybody escape that. No amount of money, no amount of influence, no amount of political power has ever overcome that. That for me is the go-to. And finally, the last thing, that you are loved by God. We love this idea that you are loved by God. Well, what makes you say that? What kind of confidence do you have in saying that? Well, John would write, for God so loved the world, he sent his only son to die on a cross. So Easter for us, we love these things. We love this idea about it. But the basis for why these things can be true, if you boil it down to, yeah, but why, 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 why? Because we watched somebody, the disciples would say, we watched somebody die. And then we saw him with our own eyes and we spent the rest of our lives telling people about it. We spent the rest of our lives writing about it. And our successive generations have taken that message and that story. And every Easter, the church calendar builds around to this idea, which is why every single church, this today is talking about this exact same thing, right? This is what everybody's doing today. By the way, it's the exact same message I preached last year. This is the easiest week for me ever. I love this week. He's always, the tomb's always empty. He's always alive. And because of that, I should, and I think you should, but I'm biased. I think I should spend my life learning what he says is the best way to do life. Because he probably knows more than I do. And I'm gonna go with that. And now you and I are free to love and to forgive in turn, to love as he loved. In fact, he would say, this is the mark of the new covenant. This is how people will know that you are my disciples. You show up to church every single week. No, that you love one another as I have loved you. That you choose, we call it this. We say that you would wear love in whatever arena of life, whatever season your life, whatever current circumstance, whatever giftings you have, whatever talents you have, whatever resources you have, you figure out what it means to wear love uniquely in response to the grace shown by you. It's evidence that you have entered into this kingdom that is not of this world that we would call it the upside down kingdom. The way that the world goes is different than this. This is upside down. Some of this isn't gonna make sense to them, but why would you do that? Why would you give yourself in that way? Why would you choose that? Why not build a case for yourself? Why not make prop yourself up 
Why deflect attention when you could receive it? Why deflect power? Why serve others when you could be served? Because the message of Jesus is the anti-kingdom. It's the anti-empire. It's the revolution. It's the rebellion, guys. We're part of the rebellion. The kingdom with the king who gave his life for his subjects. The king who is worthy of your devotion. The king who is worthy of his name. And that is why we celebrate Easter and why I think it's so critically important and why I want to spend the rest of my life in a community trying to figure out what it means to live in light of his grace, in light of his teachings, in light of who he said he was. And the reason I think that the foundation for it is because of that. Because one day, men and women went and found an empty tomb. And, said he's, and then found him later and said, he's alive. And that changes everything. Let's pray. Father, we, <clears throat> we find ourselves in lots of different areas. For us, maybe the idea that there's the, like purpose in our suffering or maybe the idea that we are loved uh, are, are, are big for us. Maybe uh, the idea that, that forgiveness is available even for somebody like us. Like we, we crave that kind of stuff. And, and, and yet when we ask the question, but yeah, but why? Yeah, but why? May we be drawn back to your uh, statement of why that exists and why that is true, which is evident for us in the cross. That's what Easter means for us. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life. The courage to act on it in your name. Amen.